0: All right, I want to welcome everybody to Grace Community Church this morning, and I uh, want to remind us, if you're visiting today, that we are, as a local church, we're studying through the book of Acts together, so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. What we're going to do as we begin is we're going to ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word today. The reason why we do this each week is we believe that unless the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, what we're about to do over the next hour falls to the ground in vain. And so we ask for the Lord's blessing on the teaching of His Word. Let's do that together this morning. Let's pray. Before the mountains were brought forth, Wherever you form the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God of eternity, you are God of time, and Lord, we come to worship you. We come to worship the one today that inhabits eternity. Lord, we come to tremble before you. We desire to take our lowly place as creatures in the presence of the majestic Creator, we come to worship, Lord. God, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word today. Lord, we want to hear you speak to us through holy scripture. Lord, let your word come with power today. Let it wor- let it come with authority, Lord. Let it penetrate, God, past our minds and let it saturate our hearts today. Lord, I pray for this church Lord, we are your children. We are your sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ. And we ask you as our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, Lord. God, feed us with bread from heaven. Feed us with the words from your mouth, God. And I appeal for all of us, God, and especially some of us. Lord, we need to hear from you today, God. Some of us are in desperate places, Lord. God, speak to them today. Give them a word in season that sustains them in the midst of their weariness. Lord, speak with authority. Speak with clarity. Speak with power today. And come and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, we long to see you clearly. We long to see you as you are. And we pray the prayer of Moses today. Show us your glory, Lord, as we hear your word preached. Show us your glory, God. Make us happy in Jesus Christ. Astound us, Lord, with this glorious gospel today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9 this morning. And before we jump into that passage, and as we start out, I want to introduce us this morning to a concept. And it's a form of atheism. I want to to make us aware as a church, as the people of God, of a form of atheism that is potentially more dangerous to the church than militant atheism. And many have called this, many theologians, many pastors, have called this form of atheism practical atheism. And I want us to be warned by it this morning. And so, if atheists don't believe and say there is no God, then practical atheists live like there is no God. And unlike militant atheism, practical atheism can have a foothold in the church of Jesus Christ that we can say that we believe, we can say that God is God, we can say that Jesus reigns on his throne, and then we can live a life to where we live a life that God is none of those things. This is practical atheism. One of the mindsets that tips us off as followers of Christ that we're sliding in, in this direction is a worldview and a mindset that's called fatalism. Okay? And as we're made aware that we're thinking fatalistic thoughts, we need to be made aware that we're beginning to live like practical atheists. Fatal, fatalism is this. It's a belief that no matter what, We do. Nothing is going to change. No matter what we do, no matter how we live, absolutely nothing is going to change. Everything is fixed. And I can't do anything about it. That's called fatalism. So, real temptations for Christians, and I would add this, especially brothers and sisters... As we enter into seasons of suffering, and as we enter into hard seasons in the Christian life, we're going to be tempted to think fatalistic thoughts. No matter what I do, this will never be different. Some of the ways that this sounds in our thought life is, this ain't going to change. I'm not going to change. This circumstance is not going to change. That person is not going to change. My marriage is not going to change. My church is not going to change. And on and on and on. No matter what we do, fatalists think it ain't going to change. What I want to make us aware of this morning is that if there was ever a church okay, that was tempted to think fatalistically that everything's fixed, nothing's going to change. No matter how we live, no matter what we do, it's the early church that we see in the book of Acts. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind us that this church is being persecuted. Okay, Church in Jerusalem is under great persecution. There's two ways that that's been described already in the book of Acts. That there is havoc being wreaked. They're, they're being terrified. They're, this persecution is so murderous and so great that they're having to leave the city of Jerusalem and scatter because of the intense persecution at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And I want us to think this morning how easy it would have been for them to slip into this pessimistic, unbelieving mindset that this ain't never going to change. It's going to always be like this. How easy would that have been for the early church? And what I want us to see this morning through this passage, what I want us to see is they didn't go that direction because they knew Jesus. Their view of who Jesus was sustained them. They weren't fatalist. They believed that Jesus Christ was on the throne. And, and as long as Jesus was on the throne, nothing is impossible. It might be impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. So it's their view of Jesus Christ as the living and the reigning Christ that protected them from this practical atheism, from living a life as though God did not exist. This vivid view that Jesus is on the throne, not just in an a, a, only spiritual way, but in such a way that he invades into this world. He reigns. Not only in heaven, but He reigns over all the kings of the earth. And He changes things. He changes circumstances. What this means is that fatalism can only be true if Jesus is still dead. Fatalism can never be true if there's a living and a reigning Christ reigning over all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus so if you find yourself this morning in a rut it ain't never going to change I ain't never going to change you find yourself discouraged I want you to know this I have prayed for you today that the Lord would encourage you and that he would remind you who Jesus is that he would remind you today through the preaching of his word that Jesus lives that Jesus reigns that Jesus, has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. And I want us to walk out of here with that mindset today that we know our God. That we're reminded of who our God is. The nature of our God. The attributes of our God. And so with that broad picture, I want us to read our text this morning. In Acts chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse... 32 Let's read God's Word together. This is the Word of God this morning. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. I almost say Lydia every time I read that. At Lydda. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when they arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was still with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The Word of God to Grace Community Church today. And what we see here is just what we've been saying. That Jesus, the risen Jesus, is at work. Okay, This world is not static. This world is being ruled over by Jesus. He's at work, and He's at work in this passage through His servant. If I had to give a thesis to this passage to just say it simply, what's going on here... This would be it for me. Jesus Christ is using Peter as his instrument to bring his kingdom into desperate situations. I'll say that one more time. Jesus Christ is using Peter as his instrument to bring his kingdom into desperate situations. And brothers and sisters, what I want us to see on the face is that fatalism and practical atheism has no place in this passage. It is nowhere to be found. Okay? The, these miracles and this invading, intervening Christ explode those worldviews. They don't have any place in this passage, and they don't have any place in God's Word, and therefore they shouldn't have any place in our Christian life. Jesus reigns. And we're reminded that as long as he's on the throne this morning, that no situation, no situation is hopeless. No situation is hopeless. As we pay attention to the wider context before these verses and after these verses, we see a common theme emerge in Acts chapter 9 and in Acts 10. And that theme is, is just very simply that Jesus is changing stuff. Jesus is switching stuff around. Jesus is intervening in time, and space, in history, in real human lives. And I want us to give just a few examples of that. Of this reigning, intervening Christ. And So I want us to remember earlier in this chapter, Acts chapter 9. Let's talk a little bit about what's already happened. As the chapter begins, Acts chapter 9, Jesus seeks out a murderer. There was a man named Saul, and he was on his way to murder Christians. He was hunting Christians, he wanted to kill Christians. Okay? And what does Jesus do? The exact opposite of fatalism. Okay? Jesus intervenes, Jesus enters in, and he flips saw the murderer, and he turns him into the apostle to the Gentiles. And this man who was on his way to murder Christians is made the most famous missionary in the history of Christianity. These are the kind of things that happen when Jesus shows up, when Jesus intervenes. No situation is hopeless. And the question for us is this, who gets the glory in those passages for the tide being turned? In Saul's life, from murderer to apostle to the nations. And the only answer to that question is a living Christ who reigns in human history. A living Christ who intervenes. And not only this, also in Acts chapter 9, we're seeing a major shift. We're seeing a major shift. I will remind us, as, as this chapter began, and as we've already mentioned... The atmosphere and the environment was persecution. People were being killed. We're told very specifically in Jerusalem that doors are being kicked in. Houses are being entered into. People are being taken to jail. Yes, even women. They are being executed before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Massive persecution. And then Jesus intervenes. And before one chapter of Scripture ends, in the midst of this environment of great persecution, we read these words in Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Had peace. King Jesus intervened into that environment of persecution, and guess what? He said, peace, be still. And the entire church had peace. It's the exact opposite of fatalism. We have a Christ who reigns, intervenes, changes stuff, brings hope into hopeless situations. Same question, who gets the glory for that? From the turn of great persecution to great peace. And the only answer is a living Christ. Not a dead Savior, but a living Christ who sits on the throne of heaven. And really, brothers and sisters, this entire chapter is being swallowed up with this theme that Jesus is turning the tide. And in a lot lot of ways, it's just preparatory because it's setting us up for the next chapter in Acts, and an even bigger turning of the tide is about to happen in Acts chapter 10. The gospel is going to the nations. The gospel is about to go to the Gentile world. Nations that have been immersed in paganism and false worship for thousands of years are about to begin to bow the knee to the Jewish Messiah. Acts chapter 10. The tide is about to be turned. That ethnic dividing wall, Jesus is about to tear it down. The exact opposite is about to happen is fatalism. Jesus is going to intervene. Jesus is going to intervene. So I want us to see the whole context is being swallowed up by this theme of this living, acting, reigning Christ turning the tide, bringing hope into hopeless situations. And this is what we're going to continue to see as we walk through this passage this morning. Why are we going to see that, brothers and sisters? Because this is who Jesus is. Why are we going to see Him intervene and change and turn the tide? Because this is who He is. This is who He is. This is who your Savior is that reigns at the right hand of God. Let's pick it up in verse 32. We are told the stage is set. The story shifts from the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter. Verse 32 tells us that he's going to and fro among these churches that were just mentioned in the previous verse. Verse 31. And in the midst of this going to and fro, in the midst of these new churches being strengthened, we have two miracle accounts that we're about to walk through, and they take place in two small villages that are located on the outskirts of modern-day Tel Aviv, Israel. So geographically, the gospel has gone from the heart of the nation, and it's already spread to the coast of Israel. Modern-day Tel Aviv. And what I want us to notice is there are going to be three similarities as we read through both of these miracle accounts. And the first is this. Both situations are going to be desperate. Both situations are going to be desperate. Human suffering. Second is this. In both accounts, Peter is going to be the instrument used by Jesus. Jesus could have done it any way he wanted, but this is how he did it. He used his servants as his instruments. And then third, you're going to see that in both accounts, the kingdom of Christ, the power of Christ breaks into real human lives. It breaks into reality. The kingdom of Jesus. So that's where we're headed this morning. And let's start with that first point. This is these are two desperate situations. Look at verse 32. In that first story, we are introduced to a man named Aeneas in the town of Lydda. Verse 32 tells us that Peter finds a man there in a paralyzed condition. Now, this is a reach, but I think it's a good one. Most likely, this man is a quadriplegic. Okay? Most likely that's the case because he has not been able to get out of his bed for eight years. For eight years, we're told that this man has been bedridden. He cannot move. He's paralyzed. Eight years, the text says. This is a desperate situation. This is human suffering. This is the effects of sin on real human lives. I want us to notice that and then jump to the second story. There in verse 37, we encounter a woman named Tabitha. This is in the town of Joppa. Verse 37 tells us that she had gotten sick, and it got worse than that. She died. She got sick, and this woman died. And in fact, this passage goes on to tell us that she was, her body was being prepared for burial in the upper room. So again, here's what we see. This is a real human life. That is suffering under the effects of sin. This is a desperate situation of human suffering. And then I want us to jump to the second point. That in both situations, in both accounts, Peter is the instrument that Jesus uses to turn this situation on its head. Peter is the instrument that Jesus uses to turn it on its head. And let's start with this one of the ways that practical atheism shows itself is an indifference to human suffering. And that makes sense, right? Because why would we lean in? Why would we pray? Why would we labor to help? Because what good would it do anyway? Nothing's going to change. Practical atheism. And we need to be reminded often, a lot, we need to be reminded a whole lot, That Jesus is not like that. In fact, we're told the exact opposite. Jesus is not cold. Jesus is not callous to human suffering. One of the most frequent things that we're told about him through the gospel narratives is that Jesus has compassion. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. He has pity to humans who are suffering under the effects of sin. This is who Jesus is. And this is the kind of Christ that gives Peter the faith not to sit on the sidelines with callous, cold indifference to human suffering. But that kind of Christ gives gives Peter the faith to enter into it. To enter into both of these situations in hopes of being used by Jesus as an instrument. An instrument in the hands of the Christ who is filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. Notice this, verse 34 and verse 40. In both situations, Peter walks into human suffering, intense human suffering. And Peter speaks prophetic words that roll back the effects of sin. He comes into human suffering and he speaks the word of God. And then the effect is that the effects of sin are rolled backwards. The clock hits rewind. And I want us to see this. In verse 34, Peter says to the man, he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. And we're talking about an instrument. And I do want us to notice that even when the power of Christ is being displayed through his instruments, Peter is going out of the way to say, I'm not doing this. Jesus heals you. I don't get any credit. Power ain't coming from me. I'm just the lowly servant. I'm the instrument. Jesus is the king. Jesus Christ heals you. He's the instrument in the hands of the Christ filled with compassion. And again, we see the same thing in verse 40. Peter And I want you to imagine how full of faith this man was in Jesus Christ. He he stares death in the face. He is looking at a corpse, death itself, and he speaks to death. And he says, Tabitha, arise. That's faith. That man doesn't believe that things are static. That man believes that Jesus is on the throne ruling the entire universe. Ruling the entire universe. Third point this morning is that in the midst of this suffering, Jesus is using him as his instrument. And then the next thing that we see happen is Jesus breaks into reality. He's that intervening Christ that we've been talking about. He displays his holy power. And I want to mention that the effects of these words and the power of Christ are twofold in this account they're temporal. And they're eternal. And I want us to see both of these. Both are important. Temporal first. There's a temporal effect to these words. Immediately following the words to Aeneas, we read this in verse 34. Immediately he rose. He wasn't just talking to the air. Okay, You can try that. You can, you can go to the graveyard this afternoon and try to... Called some folks out. This is not what Peter's doing. The Word of God is in his mouth, and there's an immediate response. There's an immediate effect. He didn't just say, um, Jesus Christ heals you. The man got up. The quadriplegic man, the paralyzed man, is now moving. So think about this. Eight years, eight years, nothing's been happening. No muscles have been firing in the legs and the arms. Those things are atrophied, they're withered, they're lifeless limbs. For eight years, and then ten words spoken in the power of Christ, and all of a sudden they're strengthened. Strength rushes into those limbs, and he can wiggle and move and walk. This is the power of Jesus invading this temporal world. Same thing happens in the miracle account in Joppa. Verse 41, after he says, Tabitha, arise, we read these words. He presented her alive. Those words had an effect. They came with the power of heaven. It's the power of Jesus. This is death. I remind you just a few things of what the Bible says about death. It is the king of terrors. In the book of Job. It is the last enemy to be destroyed in 1 Corinthians 15. It is the wages of our sin in Romans chapter 3. And with two words, Jesus overpowers the king of terrors, death itself. And he calls this girl out of death. And she is presented alive and death itself is overpowered. This is the power of Jesus Christ. The power of Christ exercised in this... Temporal world, real space, real time, real human being. And I want us to see this. At the same time that Jesus is showing that he can change temporal circumstances. And I want you to understand that's what happened in both of those healings. Thanks. Both Aeneas and Tabitha enjoyed this burst of power, this, the, the kingdom of Christ being unleashed in their human bodies. But it wasn't ultimate. This was only, this was not intended by Jesus to be a permanent healing. And one of the things that we know about both of these people is that eventually they died. Eventually, Aeneas died. Eventually, Tabitha tasted death. She died too. And so this is a real glimpse and a real flash of power but not the permanent kind, not the ultimate kind. Jesus is showing in a temporal way what He is able to do in a permanent and an eternal way. And it's important that we give Him glory for both. He is showing that He can change temporal circumstances, but He also shows in the same passage of Scripture that He can alter eternity. That He can also change eternity. Look at verse 40. It says they, that's the residents of Lydda. Verse 40 says they turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord. People saw that, saw the power of Christ, and they heard the word of Christ being announced, and they turned to the Lord. They got saved. They got a new heart. That, That heart of flesh got taken out. And they—I mean, the heart of stone got taken out and they got a heart of flesh. They were made new. They turned to the Lord. Similar thing happens in verse 42. Many in, believed in the Lord. Many believed in the Lord. Both in Lydda and in Joppa, people are getting saved. So Jesus is flashing His power in a temporal way, strengthening uh, human bodies, overpowering sickness, and yes, even overpowering death. But at the same time, He's flashing His power to change eternity. And He's calling people from the power of Satan to the power of Christ. Eternity was altered in a moment of time for every one of those individuals that turned to the Lord, that believed in the Lord. And I want us to note this well. When Jesus displayed His power... In these two towns, when He brought His kingdom to these two towns, time and eternity were affected. We need to be really careful not to separate those. Jesus is not content to be a spiritual only Savior that never does stuff in this world. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. And this is what the kingdom of God looks like when it breaks in to this world and this, and this creation. And that's an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. That is a great encouragement to us because that means right now God can change your circumstances and God can change your eternity. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is fatalistic. There is no one who is hopeless because Jesus is on the throne. And as Christians, we cannot ever forget this. That our God changes time and He changes eternity. He has power and authority to do both. And when He flashes His power, when He flexes His might, these are the kinds of things that we see. The tide has turned. The tide has turned. And when we see this about Jesus, then the next thing makes perfect sense, right? How do we live in light of a Christ that does this? How do we live? If that's who Jesus is, then who are we? And in this situation, we're the instruments. We're the instruments in the hands of Christ as he flashes his power, as he flexes his might. We are the instruments. How does this work? More than anything else, it works by intercession, More than anything else, it works by intercession. Does that make sense to you this morning? That the most fitting response to the people of God who see these glorious things about Jesus would be that we would live a life of intercession, calling on the name of the Lord and asking King Jesus, move, change it, turn it, bring your kingdom, Lord. Arise, O oh Lord, rend the heavens, and come down. Let righteousness rain down. Let salvation spring up from the ground. I hope that is such an easy pivot for you to understand this morning of. Of course, that's our only response. If this is who Jesus is, then let's ask Jesus to be who He is. And this is exactly what we see Peter doing in this passage. Intercession. Intercession. In the midst of death, we'll read this again. Verse 40 says this. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. That man called on the name of the Lord. And guess what? He was answered. Jesus answered him, intercession, most fitting response to the sovereignty of Christ, the power of Christ and the nature of Christ. Now, why would Peter pause in that moment in the presence of a corpse and ask God to do what we just read about? This is not the only answer. There are other answers. There are unique things going on here in this passage with an apostle that are not repeated. Yes, slide that to the side. But part of that answer has to be this. Why did the man stop and pray with a corpse right beside him? And part of that answer, brothers and sisters, had to be because he believed that Jesus reigned. He believed that Jesus had authority even over death itself. He wasn't a fatalist. He wasn't a practical atheist. He he believed that if he called on the name of the Lord, that Jesus would answer him. And that's what I want to encourage us towards this morning, that we would do likewise. That we would call on the name of the Lord and ask Jesus to display his glory that we would ask Jesus to glorify His holy name, that we would ask Jesus to turn the tide in all kinds of different ways, in all kinds of different circumstances. Temporal things, eternal things, all different kinds of things. Calling on the name of the Lord because we believe that God is the living God. Every other God besides Him is dead, demonic, and cannot save, cannot hear. But He's the living God who hears us when we call upon His name. And the encouraging thing uh, for us, this has always been who God is. He's never been any different. And even the saints of old knew Him in the same way. That this God is the one true God. He's the living God that hears us when we call. King David knew God as the God of the breakthrough. Think about that. Is that one of the names that come rushing to your mind when you think about God? He is the Lord of the breakthrough. Nothing is too difficult for Him. Nothing is impossible for Him. He will break through it. He is the Lord of the breakthrough. If you have your Bibles, turn really quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 20 says this, And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, the enemies of Israel. And then he said this, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim, which means Lord of breaking through. Lord of breaking through. Man can look back geographically in his life and say, God did something there. Broke through my enemies like a bursting flood. This has always been who the living God is. The breakthrough. Not only David, Jonathan also knew God to be a living God. The living God who acts in real human history. You have your Bibles turned backwards a little further to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 16. I want you to get a glimpse into a heart of a man who really gets this about the nature of God. In the midst of Israel's war with the Philistines, we find these words on the lips of Jonathan. Listen closely. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing can hinder Him. Let's go do it. Let's go take it to our enemies, because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I challenge us this morning this glimpse into the nature of God and the next pivot of calling upon his name. Zeal to ask God to be the living God. Zeal to ask God to be the living God. And I want us to examine ourselves just for a moment in the presence of God this morning. What kinds of things are you calling on the Lord Jesus to do in your life? So you have these glorious attributes of Jesus reigning at the right hand of God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he has a record all throughout uh, revealed history, salvific history of intervening, turning the tide, bringing hope into hopeless situations. That's who Jesus is. And so ask yourself, what, in light of that, what kinds of things are you asking Jesus to do in your life? What kinds of things are you calling on the Lord and asking him to do in your life? And just for a moment, you think about this. I want you to examine your prayer life in the last month. We examine ourselves before the Lord. we want to be reoriented in the will of God. we want to be like Christ, we want to be holy men and women. So if there's deficiencies in our life we want to see them and turn from them and repent and we want to be like Jesus and so ask yourself this question. if the Lord answered every prayer that you prayed in, in the last month of your life, if the Lord answered every prayer, That you prayed in the last month of your life, what kinds of things would you be receiving? The Lord answered every prayer that you prayed in the last month, what kinds of things would be true? Now, I'm not suggesting that God answers every prayer that we pray. I am not suggesting that. I am not suggesting that we pray whatever we want, whenever we want. Our prayers have to be governed by the will of God. But part of the will of God is He said, Call to me and I will answer. Call to me and I will answer. So if He did that, if He answered every one of them, what kinds of things would you be experiencing in your life? Let's start here. How many souls would be saved? How many souls to be saved? How many brands would you see Jesus pluck from the burning? How many would you see, brothers and sisters, turn from the power of Satan to the power of God? How many would you see that their heart of stone was taken out and Jesus gave them a heart of flesh? How many? How many? Are we asking Jesus to do what He's revealed Himself to do Are we praying according to the nature of Christ? How many marriages would be strengthened if God answered every prayer for marriages at Grace Community Church that you prayed in the last month? How, how much strength would be there in the place of weakness? How much help would husbands and wives be getting from the Holy Spirit if Jesus answered every one of your prayers for this local church? How many evangelistic opportunities would you have in your life to testify of the gospel, to speak of Jesus? Are we praying? Are we praying? Are we asking God, open up a door for your word? In my life, tear it open, Lord Jesus. Are we asking for opportunities to testify to the gospel of the grace of God? What kinds of things would you be experiencing? And we'll end here this morning. How many unreached people groups would be touched by your prayer life if the Lord Jesus answered every prayer that you prayed for the nations in the last month? Is that too big for this Christ? Seated at the right hand of God, intervening in space and time, turning the tide, bringing hope into hopeless situations. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And we sang that this morning. asking, I will give the nations to you as your heritage, the ends of the earth as your possession. Are we doing that? Are we praying? Lord, let the nations be glad. Let the people who dwell in darkness, let them see a great light, Lord. Get your gospel to the unreached peoples of the earth. Use us, Lord Jesus. Use this small Weak local church to faithfully plant churches among the nations and do it for your glory, Lord, not for ours. How many unreached people groups would be impacted by your prayer life? Brothers and sisters, this is how we express our faith in the risen, exalted Lord. We call, we pray. And when we do that, we're expressing that we believe him to be who he says he is. And let me say this before we move on to the last thing. I'm not trying to shame anybody here this morning about your prayer life or lack thereof. I'm not. I'm not. I do not believe that shame will drive you to the secret place and with zeal in your heart call upon the name of the Lord. I don't think that's going to get you there. Conviction of sin is part of that puzzle, but it's not the whole thing. And I'm convinced that what we need more than anything else is we need a burning conviction that when we pray, He will hear us. He will hear us. Think about that banging around in your mind that you know, that you know, that you know. If you call on His name, He will answer. That'll drive you to pray. Seeing Jesus rightly, Seeing Him for who He really is, that's what we really need. A reminder of the nature of Christ. He's the living God. I want to close with one final reminder. These miracles, these two miracle accounts in this passage, they show us the character of God, and that's what we've been talking about thus far. But miracles also show us the character of God's kingdom. Miracles give us just a little glimpse of what it li- looks like when Jesus draws near. When Jesus reigns. gives us a picture and a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Listen to this verse. Luke 10, verse 9, says this. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice what Jesus is saying when He charges His servants. He gives them a specific charge in Luke 10. Heal the sick. And then notice that phrase. And when you do it, say this. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And we need to start thinking about miracles in in, in that way. It's, It's synonymous with the kingdom being demonstrated. We're supposed to know that when miracles happen, the kingdom comes. When healing happens, the kingdom comes. It gives us a glimpse into the kingdom of Jesus. And so think about this. Think about how encouraging this is for us this morning. Miracles roll back the effects of sin. We talked about that. Sin has a real effect on the human body. And ultimately has the effect of death. And miracles are an expression of the kingdom of Christ, the power of Christ to roll back the effects of death. Of sin and here's the encouraging thing every time you read a miracle in the New Testament you need to understand that that God has given you a foretaste and an appetizer of what eternity is going to be like with Christ there will be no more sickness there will be no more paralysis in the kingdom of Jesus there will be no more sin in the kingdom of of Jesus and ultimately there will be no more death. Jesus is flashing his power and showing us and demonstrating what his kingdom is like. His kingdom is it's like all the effects of sin being overpowered and reversed in the kingdom of Christ. The Bible reminds us that Jesus will return again and destroy death forever. Not in the temporary way that we see in Acts chapter 9 and Tabitha's life, but we're promised an even greater (coughs) miracle, an even greater display of power that He's coming back to destroy death forever. And this is only true for those who put their trust in Christ. Isaiah 25 verse 8 tells us that Jesus, when He comes back, He's going to do this, swallow up death forever. He's going to eat it for breakfast forever. He's going to drink death. He's going to overpower death. He will swallow up death. And then catch this, we are told twice, John chapter 5, how Jesus is going to do this. We are told that at the return of Christ and on the final day, Jesus will speak to death. Just like we saw Peter in Acts chapter 9, but a greater speaking to death, an ultimate speaking to death. John 5 gives us two accounts. John 5, 29. Jesus says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God of God. He will speak to death. John 5, 28, Jesus says again, all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. He's coming back to destroy death and the way Jesus is going to do it is He's going to speak to it. He's going to speak to it. Brothers and sisters and everyone in Christ in this room, this is encouraging to us. That a day is coming very very soon, when we will hear the same words that Peter says in verse 40. We will hear those words, Arise! Get up! Be raised! Come out! Arise! And as soon as those words roll off the lips of Jesus Christ, for everyone who's in Christ death will be destroyed instantaneously and death will be destroyed forever by the power of his word what happens next we live in the kingdom of christ for all eternity death swallow up swallowed up and the last enemy destroyed this is who he is we'll close with john chapter 11 verse 25 jesus said i am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask God that you would cause your word to bear fruit today. Lord, come against all those discouragements that land on us, all the varied types of discouragements that land on us, and blast them away with a glimpse of of your Son, seated on the throne of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.